Uh, well, we are in the middle of a teaching series right now, a teaching series on the Bible, a series I'm calling Well Read. And two weeks ago, I began talking to you just a little bit uh, about the common tendency among many people to misread or mishandle Scripture. Uh, because while the Bible itself is right and true, breathed out by God himself, breathed into by God himself, it's read and it's interpreted and it's applied by people who are not always necessarily right and true. And so two weeks ago, we gave out scripture memory cards for uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. I hope you've taken some time the last couple of weeks to begin memorizing that verse of Scripture. Just to get us focused and moving this morning, would you stand with me, please, as you're able to do that? And uh, let's either recite or read together this verse, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 15. This is what the Bible says. Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Praise the Lord, this is the word of the Lord, and, and you may be seated. Now, as I mentioned when we first began to look at this verse a couple of weeks ago, that uh, clear exhortation there by Paul to do your best to correctly handle the word of truth makes it perfectly clear that it is entirely possible to incorrectly handle the word of truth. And if you do that, well, the bottom line is the Bible is still the word of truth. Scripture is still true. But if you handle it incorrectly, the things you say about it or the ways you attempt to apply it may in fact not be true at all. The last time I spoke to you on this subject, I focused primarily on ways that critics have mishandled Scripture, often in an attempt to discredit it. Today, I want to begin to turn your attention to some of the ways Christians sometimes mishandle Scripture. Because the bottom line is, the truth of the matter is, that Paul's exhortation to do your best to correctly handle the word of truth was not written to critics of the Bible. Rather, it was written to people like you and me, people who claim to love the Bible, people who claim to want to honor it. Now, in the future, I do want to take some time and teach, probably for a couple of weeks, on how to read the Bible well. And to be honest, when I do that, it, it's going to be, you know, a little bit meddlesome, teaching on how to read the Bible as it was meant to be read. But before I get there, I want to take a brief look this morning at, at just a couple of common errors that Christians sometimes make when handling Scripture. Specifically, I want to deal particularly this morning with a tendency to focus too selectively on certain themes or certain passages to the exclusion of others, leading ultimately to imbalance, and also on the tendency to treat the Bible superstitiously, to treat it like how, like, somehow like it's magic, and as a result, then to try to use the Bible in ways it was never intended to be used. But before I get into either of those errors, I want to take just a minute to point out something that should be obvious, but that too few Christians seem to notice. Namely, that when the Bible refers to the Word of God, it's not necessarily speaking about itself. 
When you find the phrase, the Word of God in the Bible, it's not necessarily talking about the Bible. Evangelical Christians often refer to the Bible as the Word of God, and it's absolutely, perfectly reasonable to do so. This book is, in fact, the written Word of God. There's no other book like it in the world, breathed out by God himself, breathed into by God himself, bearing the very words of God himself. Completely trustworthy, completely authoritative, so that the authority of the Bible is, in fact, the authority of God. But it is worth understanding that at no time ever is the Bible referring specifically to the book you hold in your hand or the book you have on your phone because that book had not yet been compiled at the time the Bible was being written. In other words, when the New Testament was being written, the Bible as you know it did not yet exist. I assume you understand that. What that means in part is when the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's absolutely true. I believe that to be absolutely true. I believe that to be true of all Scripture. But he wrote it before the book of Revelation had been written. And very likely before the book of the Gospel of John had been written. I still believe it applies to the book of Revelation and the Gospel of John, but I point that out. The truth is most of the time when the apostles in the New Testament appealed to Scripture or referred to Scripture, most of the time, they were actually referring to the Old Testament. Have you ever thought about that? The New Testament canon, as it now stands, was not officially settled until A.D. 393, the Council of Hippo. That was almost 300 years after the death of the Apostle John. For the most part, when Paul and John and Peter and Luke sat down to write, they didn't sat down, they didn't sit down to write scripture. They sat down to write letters. Or in Luke's case, they sat down to write history. And I want to be sure to say that should not bother you in the least. The, the truth is, I rather doubt that when David was writing songs and poetry and psalms when Solomon was writing out some proverbs when Ezra was recording the history of the Jewish people I doubt they understood at that moment that they were writing scripture that doesn't make any difference whatsoever because the Holy Spirit moved them to write and the Holy Spirit gave them what to write and right away the people of God began to recognize that they had in fact written something unique something holy they immediately began to gather and collect and share these writings, recognizing them and treating them as holy, recognizing them as writings given by God, carrying the authority of God. But at any rate, when the Bible refers to the Word of God, it can refer, depending on the context, to any of a variety of kinds of communications from God. Sometimes, for example, the phrase in the Bible, the Word or the Word of God, refers to Jesus himself. John chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know for certain it's talking about Jesus, because later in verse 14 it goes on to say, And the Word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. In Revelation chapter 19, we see the heavens open and Jesus coming in on a white horse. They, they call him faithful and true. And verse 13 says, he is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. Again, we know for certain they're talking about Jesus because verse 16 says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, I've heard Christians take these verses and then try to equate Jesus and the Bible. And I want to be very clear. That's not at all what these texts are saying. These texts are not attempting to equate Jesus and the Bible. They are not saying uh, that uh, the Bible is on par with Jesus in glory or power or anything else. Jesus is God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. The Bible is a book, a book given by God, authored by God, breathed out and breathed into by God, but a book nonetheless. I once was teaching a group of Lutheran pastors on the Holy Spirit. And one of the things I said is, I am concerned that many of you worship each week in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Bible. That, that somehow you've managed to replace the third person of the Trinity with something never meant to replace him. These texts are not saying that Jesus and the Bible are one because these texts aren't saying anything at all about the Bible. The phrase, the word or the word of God in these texts has nothing to do with the Bible. Rather, it is declaring Jesus himself to be the ultimate communication of God. It's part of what Jesus meant when he said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect, ultimate communication of God. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. When you hear Jesus, you hear the Father. So sometimes, when the Bible says the Word of God is referring specifically to Jesus, not to the Bible. And sometimes, when the Bible refers to the Word of God, it's referring to some other communication from God outside the Bible. For example, Luke chapter 3, verse 2. The Bible says, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. After this coming of the word of God, John the Baptist, in this case, began his preaching ministry. And I don't know what you imagine happened here in this particular setting, but I am perfectly certain that a Bible did not fall out of heaven and hit John in the head. Which means in this case, as in many other cases, the biblical phrase, the word of God, is not referring to the Bible. And I bring this up very simply because a lot of Christians have confused themselves when they come across this phrase, reading scripture. And some have unfortunately developed heretical notions 
about the Bible. Let me be clear. I love the Bible. I read it. I, I eat it. I trust it. I esteem it. I believe it is the written word of God. I believe it speaks with the authority of God. I believe it can be trusted in every way. I believe all of that to be true. But Jesus is God. The Bible is not. It is a book meant to point you to God and to draw you and move you toward a relationship with him through his son Jesus. So having said that, let me briefly consider two other ways. Christians sometimes mishandle the scripture. And let's begin with a consideration of the problem of selective reading. Just reading the stuff you like while fastidiously avoiding the stuff you don't. Ironically, it was largely the result of the efforts of a selective reader, a heretic by the name of Marcion, that led the church to begin thinking about a New Testament canon in the first place. Marcion was the son of a Christian bishop who eventually came under the influence of a Gnostic teacher in Rome by the name of Cerdo. And let me just stop here for a second and speak directly to Christian parents. It is incredibly important, Christian parents, that you know who is teaching your children and that you know what they are teaching your children. You need to pay attention to who is instructing your children. The Bible says bad company corrupts good character. And I believe bad teaching corrupts good thinking, corrupts good faith, and corrupts good morals. At any rate, Martian began to argue, in essence, that there were two gods, the mean, malevolent creator God of the Old Testament and the sweet, gracious God of the New Testament. And somewhere around the middle of the second century, somewhere around AD 44, Martian proposed a Christian canon of simply 11 books, a greatly reduced version of the Gospel of Luke and 10 of the letters of the Apostle Paul. Everything else he rejected outright. The entire Old Testament, he rejected outright. And anything in the New Testament uh, that the church had been using that he felt like spoke positively of the Old Testament God, he rejected outright. More than a millennium and a half later, in 1820, Thomas Jefferson literally took a pair of scissors to the New Testament, cutting out every reference he could find to miracles or to the resurrection of Jesus, creating what became known as the Jefferson Bible. At one point, Congress actually printed numerous copies of these and handed them out to every new member of Congress when they came. Now, while I cannot imagine any serious Christian taking a pair of scissors to the New Testament today, I need to tell you that the truth is many Christians perform essentially the exact same function through their highly selective reading of the Bible. When they read and reread the promises they like and steadfastly avoid the harder, more challenging, more convicting stuff. In essence, they take a black highlighter to the parts they'd rather not deal with. And this happens every single time. A conservative Christian 
more or less skips right over the stuff in the Bible about caring for the poor and the needy, about caring for strangers and aliens and foreigners, about being ready to forgive and really love those who slander and persecute us and those who are trapped in the throes of sin. This very same thing happens every single time a modern progressive or liberal Christian completely ignores the plain teaching of the Bible on subjects like sex and sexuality, sin and personal holiness, and the utter inadequacy of human effort and everyone's desperate need for Jesus. I believe people caught up in this particular error of reading the Bible selectively are honestly reading the Bible politically. They're hunting and picking through it to find the stuff that supports the things they already believe. And the disturbing result of it all is a whole bunch of folk who call themselves Christians but who don't look very much like Jesus or any of his earliest followers. Another common error, at least among conservative Christians, involves handling the Bible superstitiously. Treating the Bible, because it is the Bible, as if it were somehow magic. Ascribing to the Bible, because it's the Bible, powers or characteristics that it does not claim for itself and that no one in the Bible ever ascribed to it. The great irony of this particular error is that it mishandles Scripture in the name of honoring it. Reminds me of the time the Israelites tried to treat the Ark of the Covenant superstitiously. If you don't know, the Ark of the Covenant was a special box in the Old Testament that God commanded to be built. It was overlaid in gold. It had two, two angels on top. And God, the presence of God, would hover over it. And he would promise to meet with his uh, children there. You'll find this particular account in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The Israelites were battling with the Philistines. They were at war. And they were shocked and dismayed to find the Philistines winning. And so in verse 3, you find the elders of the Israel discussing the problem. Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. In essence, they were treating the Ark of the Covenant very much like the Nazis did in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you ever saw that movie. They were treating it like some sort of all-powerful good luck charm. But the Ark of the Covenant, very much like the Bible, is a means given by God for people to be drawn to him and have access to him. But it was never God himself. The Israelites didn't need the ark. They needed the God who gave them the ark. The account goes on to say that they got the ark and took it with them into battle. And you pick it up in verse 10. The Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. I fear many Christians today 
try to use the Bible in much the same way the Israelites tried to use the ark on this particular occasion. Imagine just by carrying it around, something, you know, will happen. Or that simply by quoting it, they can make things go away. The Bible is not magic. And you should not try to use it like magic. The Bible is God's written word. And it was given to instruct and guide you. It was not given to be quoted at your problems. It was given to be believed and obeyed and followed. I believe the classic example of this error is found in the account of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. After Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for a period of time. Jesus fasted during this time, 40 days and 40 nights. And so the very first temptation the enemy brought to him was the temptation to turn rocks into bread. The Bible tells us that Jesus responded to that temptation with words of Scripture from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. It is written, Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Next, the enemy promised to give him all the kingdoms of the world if he would just bow down and worship him. Jesus responded to that temptation with the words of Deuteronomy 6.13. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the enemy took him up to the top of the temple and said, why don't you prove you're the son of God? Throw yourself off the temple because the angels of God will come and swoop you up so that you won't be harmed. The Bible says Jesus responded to that temptation with the words of Deuteronomy 6.16. It is also written, Jesus said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. After these temptations, the Bible says the enemy departed him for a season and angels came and attended him. Now, I can't tell you how many times in my lifetime I've heard people read that story or allude to that story and then declare Jesus defeated the devil in the wilderness by quoting scripture. In many Christian circles, this is simply considered a truism. Jesus beat the devil by quoting scripture. And the corollary is, of course, that's how you can beat him too. The problem is, it's not really true. Jesus didn't defeat the devil in the wilderness by quoting scripture. Jesus defeated the devil in the wilderness by obeying scripture. Scripture is not magic. And merely quoting it has no magic power. In fact, in this encounter with the devil in the wilderness, the devil himself quoted Scripture. During his temptation of Jesus to throw himself off the temple, the devil accurately quoted Psalm 91. It says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Listen to me. The devil's not afraid of Scripture. He's actually quite gifted at twisting it and using it to his own purposes. The devil's not afraid of you quoting Scripture. The devil's afraid of you living it because that's what it was given for. It was not given as a talisman or a good luck charm or a magic bullet or a magic incantation book. It was given to instruct you 
in the word and the ways and the will of God to show you how to live. The truth is, I don't believe Jesus quoted scripture at the devil at all in the wilderness. I believe when Jesus quoted scripture in the wilderness, he was quoting it to himself. The temptation comes to turn rocks into bread. And I think Jesus said, what does the Bible say? Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. On every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This didn't come from the mouth of God. No, I'm not going to turn those breads into stone. And he obeyed the scripture and overcame the temptation. The enemy came and said, uh, throw yourself down. Uh, uh, let me quote some scripture to you. Uh, God will cause his angels to snatch you away. I think Jesus thought, that really is what Psalm 91 says. But what else does the Bible say? The Bible also says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God. I can't put the Lord to the test. That would be tested. No, I'm not going to do that. And he obeyed the scripture and overcame the temptation. When the enemy said, said, you know, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down and worship me. I think Jesus thought, what does the Bible say? It says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship the Lord your God. Worship him and serve him only. No, I'm not going to do that. And by obeying the scripture, he overcame the temptation. Jesus did not overcome the devil by quoting scripture. He overcame the devil by obeying scripture, by living it and walking it out. I believe you can quote scripture till you're blue in the face, but until you're willing to walk it out, I don't think the devil's going anywhere. Pastor Murley used to say, you're not changed by the scripture you read. You're only changed by the scripture you do. James wrote in his epistle, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. The Bible is an extraordinary, unparalleled, authoritative gift from God to show you who he is, what he wants, to show you who you are and how you should live. It is imperative that we do our best to correctly handle it. Let's pray. Father, as always, I thank you for the power and the clarity of your word. Of Jesus, the word made flesh, and of this book of the Bible, the written word of God that tells us the truth and shows us the way to life with you, the life we were created to live, the life you desire. Father, it is our desire to esteem this book as you desire it to be esteemed. It is our desire to honor this book in the ways you desire it to be honored. Help us, Lord, to do our best, not merely our best, but by the grace of God, your divinely empowered best, to handle it correctly, that we might grow more and more into the people you've called us and created us to be. Help us not to try and twist scripture to our desires, but to submit our desires to it. We ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen.